seconds from game seven or from championship number six. Hello, everyone. Welcome to season two of After the Last Dance. I'm your host, Alex Wong, and for each episode, I will be joined by my co-host, Russ Bankson. Before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to the Soul Savvy team for giving Russ and I this platform to chat about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Soul Savvy is a sneaker platform and community that provides you with the tools and resources you need to beat the bots to successfully purchase the products you want for retail. For more details, please check out soulsavvy.com. S-O-L-E-S-A-V-Y.com. All right, everyone, welcome back to After the Last Dance. So today we wanted to dive into a part of Michael Jordan's career that was not covered during the 10 episodes of The Last Dance, and maybe for a very good reason. Um, We will get into that. It's Michael Jordan's years with the Wizards. So as many of you know, Michael did come out of retirement for a third stint and uh, with the Wizards uh, played two years but even before that we have to talk about how he became part of the Wizards organization so Russ maybe we can start with the 1999-2000 season and in late January that is when Michael joined the team as a minority owner which was a bit of a surprise because he didn't really get along with owner Abe Poland right yeah this was this was sort of like I mean Jordan coming back at all after that many years off was strange enough for him to come back in the Washington Wizards with their Wu-Tang W on their Dazzle jerseys. It was a very bizarre sight. And then for anyone who followed the lockout, there was a infamous moment when things got really contentious with Jordan on the side of the players. Abe Pollin, the longtime owner of the Wizards since 1964, said something about, you know, not being sure if he could afford to run his team. And Jordan was like, well, if you can't afford to run it, maybe you should sell it. And Pollen did not take that particularly well. He'd owned the team for over 30 years, you know, and somehow a few months later, this leads to Abe and his wife inviting Jordan to their suburban DC townhouse for dinner, which leads to him becoming a minority owner of the team, which is fascinating because it's like, if you can't afford to run your team, you should sell it. And the subtext being to me. Yeah. So Jordan joins the team. And one of the first quotes he gives is, quote, I'm going to leave my imprints and footprints all over this organization. I'm looking forward to turning this thing around. Right now, we're an underachieving team. And to give that quote some context, the Wizards, up to that point, had made the playoffs just once since the 1988-89 season. And that was in 97 when they lost in a three-game sweep to Jordan's Bulls in the first round. And you have to go back to 1983 to the last time that the franchise had won a playoff series. And that was also the last time that they had made it past the first round. So Jordan joins the team uh, mid-season, I guess. This is late January of the 2000 season. And this is the this is the Wizards roster, okay? Their leading scorer is a 34-year-old Mitch Richmond. Um, they've got Juwan Howard, Rod Strickland, Tracy Murray, and Richard Hamilton, who was the seventh pick in the 99 draft. And this is a 29-win team that season. I mean, I don't know. What else can we add to the context of of this Wizards franchise besides the fact that they were just terrible? I mean, they were definitely a little bit dead in the water. I mean, you go back to that 96-97 team, the loss of the Bulls. You know, at least that was a team with Weber and Howard and seemed to have an idea of where they were going. Clearly by 
99, 2000, they were a bit adrift. And it's hard to say, like, I'm curious, you know, if Jordan, and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, if he never had the bug, you know, bite him to be like, forget this, I want to be back on the court. You know, I wonder what he would have done to rebuild that team without Michael Jordan. If he never came back and played, like, does he trade Rip Hamilton? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's entirely possible just because I feel like he wanted veterans anyway. But, uh, you know, I'm curious what direction that team goes in without Jordan on the floor. You know, it's just funny to me that Jordan comes in and takes over basketball operations or, you know, as a part owner. And Wes Unseld is still the GM. I don't know, and RIP to Wes, who recently passed away, but I'm not entirely sure at that point what his role was. You know, was he able to make trades or or any roster moves without consulting Jordan? You know, at at what point is a GM no longer a GM? Yeah, and and Wes Unsell had been there, right? He had been the GM since 1996. And obviously, Michael is coming in as an inexperienced executive and suddenly he's got um you know all this power over basketball operations it's funny you mentioned how the team would have been built if jordan didn't get that itch to come back and we'll get into the specific moves but based on you know what we know uh, about how those two years played out when michael came back with the wizards and all the moves that he made do you feel like he was you know pushing uh, kind of a win now agenda with everything that he was doing i mean i think <sighs> That's the tough part. You know, I think Jordan definitely went to win now when he came back as a player. And I think even as an executive, I'm sure he wanted to show results right away. You know, I mean, that's when it became personal to him. I'm sure, like, he thought rebuilding slowly and, you know, accumulating lottery picks, like, who needs to do that? Like, let's make a splash right away and let's be competitive. And, like, You know, I mean, I think you can go back all the way to his coming back in 1986 from his broken foot. Not making the playoffs just wasn't an option. And unfortunately, when you're a GM or director of basketball operations or what have you, and you look at it like that, you're going to wind up doing a lot of things that you probably shouldn't. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of hindsight now. So, you know, Michael announces that he's coming back to play in in the 2011 season and, and, and even t- in the t- 2001 season, man, I'm time traveling. Um, so, so Michael's first season, first full season as a, as a Wizards exec comes uh, the, the, in the 2000 and 2001 season. And this is the team that goes 19 and 63. And because of that, they're able to land the first overall pick. And I know we have so much hindsight about how those Wizards years ended up. But if you think about it, so on September 25th, 2001 he announces that he is giving up his ownership stake resigning as the director of basketball operations i guess in name only um and announces that he's going to return and at the time as a wizards fan you have to be pretty excited because you know even though michael is obviously in the twilight of his career you're getting michael jordan on the court and you've got the number one overall pick so that's got to be cause for optimism and i was going to say i mean it's not even it's not even the twilight of his career as much as it's like the lights have been out. He's been asleep, you know? It's been a couple of years now. I think like the when he came back for 94-95, that was almost seen as inevitable and this was almost seen as like, "Whoa, dude, like 
are you sure you want to do this? You know, even though he retired, obviously, absolutely on top in 98, by the time he's coming back in his late 30s with a team he's never played for before, even with that aforementioned number one pick, who we'll talk about more, who turns out to be a high school kid named Kwame Brown, you know, it, it was hard to envision like a 38, 39-year-old Jordan willing the Bulls to this, you know, Larry Bird is a rookie-esque turnaround where they'd win like 40 more games. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think if you were to tell me um, that, you know, a team was adding Jordan and a number one overall pick, and given the East at the time, you know, it wasn't like there were, you know, a bunch of juggernauts uh, in the Eastern Conference. Uh, you know, I would have thought that the Wizards for sure would have made it back to the playoffs or at least, you know, competed for, for one of the last playoff spots. So Michael comes back and he announces that he's going to donate his basketball salary to help those impacted by the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which happened two weeks before he made his announcement to return. And he says, quote, I feel there's no better way of teaching young players than to be on the court with them as a fellow player, not just in practice, but in actual NBA games. While nothing can take away from the past, I am firmly focused on the future and the competitive challenge ahead of me. Uh, Last Dance uh, alumni Doug Collins comes back as head coach of the team. For for the record, that quote about teaching young players on the floor, I would have loved to have seen the reactions of various Last Dance era teammates to that quote like, say, a Scott Burrell or a Randy Brown or even a Steve Kerr. You know, it's like, okay, you're going to uh, teach young players, as in punch them in the face? I'm not sure about that. Uh, I'm sure he believed it when he said it. I don't know if uh, how, how true that was, even from the first time he stepped on the court. I would also venture to say, And I'm sure there were things written about it at the time. I did not do my due diligence here, but, you know, I'm sure there were plenty of times of him stepping on the floor in the practice facility when he was an exec just to show a young player a thing or two. And when I say show him a thing or two, I mean show him that he couldn't beat Michael Jordan. Yeah, uh, you mean just take away their entire manhood. Um, So with the first overall pick, the Wizards – infamously select high schooler Kwame Brown. So um, I want your thoughts on Kwame, but first uh, I want to read you some of the players that went in that draft. That was a year that we had discussed on a previous episode where the Bulls uh, got Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry. They went second and fourth. Pau Gasol was the third overall pick. And if you go on in the lottery, um, Jason Richardson went fifth, Shane Battier sixth. You had Joe Johnson with the 10th pick, Richard Jefferson 13th. You know, we, we know what happened with, with Kwame Brown's career and, and you know, um, how disappointing he was for a number one overall pick. Um, you know, I would just venture and say that, you know, the those two years of, of MJ playing with the Wizards would have been a lot different if they landed a different player. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, you know, obviously he didn't announce he was coming back until September, so this was would have been after the draft. You know, I wonder if they draft differently or trade down, you know, with the thought that Jordan was going to come back. Kwame was a guy who obviously had a lot of promise, a lot of physical talent, but clearly it wasn't in like the mental emotional space to be like the lead dog on an NBA team or even, you know, even to really come in and contribute right away. I mean, I think even with a lot of the other high schoolers that have come before him, whether it was Jermaine O'Neal or Tracy McGrady, you know, or specifically bigs, like 
you had to understand it was going to take a while for these guys. And it wasn't just dominating at a physical level playing against men, but it was like adjusting to life on the road, adjusting to, you know, being a professional. And, you know, unfortunately for a variety of reasons, one who wore number 23, Kwame never really got that chance. Actually, the most impressive thing to me for Kwame Brown is that he did actually have a fairly long NBA career and became a reasonably productive NBA player for a while. Yeah. So the, the, the rest of the roster, you know, there were two former UNC guys, Hubert Davis, Brandon Haywood, and the top five scores on the team that season were Michael Rip Hamilton, Chris Whitney, Courtney Alexander, and Tyron Liu. So how did Michael do in his first season back? So he plays 60 games and uh, deals with uh, an injury, a cartilage issue in his knee that ends his season early. And the team finishes 37 and 45. They were actually 26 and 21 at the All-Star break and looked on pace to make the playoffs uh michael was voted in as an all-star starter um i'll get your thoughts on the all-star game in a second he uh his stats for the season 22.9 points 5.2 assists 5.7 rebounds pretty good stats for what a 39 year old yeah no i mean he had he had a good a good season i remember like i was actually at his first game back because his first game back was at the at the garden you know and his coming out even for the starting lineups. I mean, it was one of those things you just couldn't imagine happening, you know, certainly a year before, or even, even in 90, you know, even in 98, when he retired, it's like, okay, he's done. It was probably, I mean, by then it was the end of October. So it was a little removed from nine 11, but you know, it was kind of the second big sports moment in returning to quote unquote normal after Mike Piazza's home run as a Met, which was like, in, I think that was the first actual sporting event that took place after 9-11. But yeah, I mean, just seeing Jordan back on a court was surreal. It was like, I don't even know how to describe it, except in the sense of like, you know, it was something you never expected to see again. And it's like, oh, here he is. He had kind of a rough night at the Garden that night, which was, I guess, a little bit of a preface to what was to come, because you, you were so used to him coming to the Garden and just wrecking everything. For him to be human and his team to lose, it wasn't exactly what you expected. So you had to just sort of appreciate what he was then. Yeah, you know, and obviously you can't tell, you know, someone uh, whether they should come back and play or not if they can. But, you know, there's been a lot of sentiment about, and especially in retrospect, about how, you know, his shot over Brian Russell in the finals with the Bulls, that should have been his last, you know, moment as an NBA player. It was so iconic. It, it obviously closed out the last dance narrative. You know, when you heard that he was coming back with the Wizards and, you know, having, you know, be, getting a chance to watch him play in that first game back and during that season, uh, what were your thoughts? Like, did it run through your mind that, you know, man, maybe he shouldn't have come back? Uh, where did you stand on that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's like, you know, you, you had that time to reflect on it where it's like, you know, that last shot was so perfect. And while it was a shame that they didn't get a chance to defend and, you know, try and win a seventh, especially over the years, it became like, wow, that was the perfect way for someone to go out. Like Ted Williams homering in his last at bat, you know, just like uh, how else would Michael Jordan retire? So for him to come back in this sort of bizarre years later, Harry Potter epilogue kind of thing was like nothing, nothing good could have come of it. I mean, sure. Like 
perfect scenario, like Kwame comes in, learns fast, the Wizards do great, Jordan stays healthy, and they somehow win a championship. But like, even that would have been a bizarre postscript onto a career that he had spent, you know, in its entirety with the Bulls. Him in a Wizards uniform was just never going to look quite right. And it's funny, like, I do want to go back to that draft for a second. I wonder, like, you know, if he was thinking about coming back, like, you would have to look at how a full-on trade package would work. But man, like, the number one pick could have been awfully enticing to someone if they wanted to trade down and get someone, you know, more ready to contribute right then, whether it was a Shane Battier, who I think would have been perfect, you know, or Joe Johnson. Pau Gasol, I don't know. I mean, I think Pau would have been ready faster and maybe would have stood up to it a little more, but I'm thinking back to young Memphis Pau or, and I'm not sure about that. Yeah, well, we know also that Jerry Krause, you know, made the trade to get an extra pick so he could pair, uh, you know, Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry uh, two picks in that draft. Uh, maybe we just missed uh, Michael and Jerry Krause getting together and negotiating some kind of blockbuster deal for that number one overall pick. And the other thing, too, is it would have been interesting. I mean, obviously, I, I'm guessing he wasn't going back to the Bulls because of Krause and where the Bulls were. But if Michael were going to come back with Kwame Brown versus coming back with Eddie Curry and Tyson Chandler, I mean, which one would you pick, right? <clears throat> Man, I mean, again, like, obviously all being fantasy, but I like the thought of Mike coming back to play for the Bulls, them drafting, you know, one of those guys and keeping Elton Brand around who'd already proven himself to be, you know, a talented player in his own right. Like, yeah, I mean, that would have been far more interesting to watch. Yeah. And, and honestly, it, you only needed to win like 40 games at the time to get into the playoffs. Um, it would have been, it would have been fun to, to see Michael in the playoffs um, in a Bulls uniform. So, you know, we were talking about the ups and downs of the season. You know, Michael scores 51 points in a December 29th game against the Charlotte Hornets. I wonder if he was still holding his baseball bat, you know, at practice before, um, you know, taking something personal from who knows who was on the, who was on the Hornets at the time. Aaron? He becomes, <laughs> he becomes the oldest player in NBA history to score 50 or more points in a game. And then two nights later, he scores only six points, a career low against the Indiana Pacers. Um, and he has this streak of 866 consecutive double-digit scoring games snapped. And then there's the All-Star game, right, where he did not play very well, to put it kindly. No, and to go back to that streak for a second, I mean, God, 866 games. Like, his streak of double-digit games was longer than probably – 99% of the players' games played, period, who are in the league. And, you know, you go back to that All-Star, and that was an odd one just because it was his first year back. So you figure he's going to play the following season too. And, you know, he's not even the leading vote-getter on his own side. Vince Carter was the leading vote-getter of all players and obviously for the East. So, I mean, it's funny because – I think Jordan, even on a greater scale than, you know, the way I looked at it, but in 94, 95, Jordan was joining a league who missed him and really wanted him back. And like, you know, we're so excited that he came back. And I think this time around, people had kind of moved on, you know, they had new superstars. I mean, you had Vince Carter and Allen Iverson and Kobe Bryant, all who had like, you know, entrench themselves as the, the 
I don't know, the, the new batch of uh, idols or however you want to classify them. It was kind of like, and, and I'm saying this because I watched that Lance Armstrong documentary a little while back. And uh, it was kind of like when Lance came back in 2008. You know, it's like he won his seven tours and decided he had to come back again. And I think when he came back that time, everyone was just like, we're good, man. Like you had your time. Like this is someone else's time. And he just sort of raged against it. And I feel like it was a little bit of the same for Jordan. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially because, you know, you look at someone like Kobe, you know, as he got older in his career, it felt like he became disconnected from the younger generation that was coming in. And if you look at LeBron now, right, um, you know, he's, you know, kind of the old head now. And you've got guys like a Kyrie Irving. Well, Kyrie's a very special case, but um, you've got guys that don't want to team up with him. And, you know, the, the younger guys want to do their own thing now. And it did feel that way with Michael coming back. And it's a bit of a foreshadowing, too, I think, for the following season, which we'll get into, when even his own teammates, um, you know, were starting to get tired of having Michael Jordan on their team, which if you think about, go back to the last dance era and the 90s, like that would be like an unfathomable thing to think about that you would have Michael on your team and you would be sick of it. Um, so one last thing about his first season back um, is, you know, as, as we said with the stats, he averaged like a 22, five and five. Like he definitely, you know, was more than just a serviceable player. And the New York Times had him listed as an MVP candidate in the first half of the season because he was the only player um, along with Kobe to average 25, five and five in the first half of the season. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other thing, obviously, and where where I'm sure Abe Pollan was happy that, you know, Mike chose to leave the front office and get back on the floor. The year before he came back, the Wizards were 18th in home attendance. And the first year he was back, they were second. They drew 200,000-something more fans at home from one season to the next. And I'm not sure exactly what that represents in in revenue earned, but – it's definitely not bad. The other thing is, and I, I, this is obviously hindsight, but man, I mean, Mike the player was Mike the front office guy's worst enemy. I mean, for starters, if someone sells you a share of their franchise, you don't sell it back to them. I mean, not only is there the fact that, you know, the value of franchises skyrockets, which I mean, Jordan saw firsthand with the Bulls, but there's a good chance that once they get it back, they're not going to sell it back to you, which obviously happened in this case. You know, Jordan coming back and playing for the Wizards, they didn't get a playoff berth, but man, there were a lot more Wizards jerseys out there when he was playing there. There were obviously a lot more people in the seats. So, you know, even as far as him playing in that All-Star game or those two All-Star games, and I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but you don't get Mariah Carey in a form-fitting Wizards jersey dress if Michael Jordan's not playing for the Wizards. Yeah, so the 2002-2003 season, that's Michael's final season and second with the Wizards. And, you know, the, the Wizards make a few key moves in the offseason. They trade Richard Hamilton for Jerry Stackhouse and sign Larry Hughes to a three-year, $15 million contract. So at this point, that is their quote-unquote, big three, right? MJ, Stackhouse, Larry Hughes, and then with the hope that Kwame Brown would have a better sophomore season than his rookie year. Yeah, although I feel like at that point, Kwame, not that he was a lost cause, but, I mean, my God, same thing. I mean, you want to talk about the player ruining the GM. It's like 
you draft a kid who obviously needs some, I don't want to say soft, but like an, an easy upbringing. You want to sort of ease him into things. And then you put him on the floor with Michael Jordan, who just absolutely destroys him. I mean, I'm not going to repeat some of the things that apparently Mike said to Kwame while they were on the practice court, but they weren't particularly productive. And, you know, they, they go out that summer and their other pickups are Charles Oakley, who, you know, obviously the older enforcer who also is going to do Mike's bidding, and Brian Russell, who no longer has to guard Michael Jordan, apparently. Yeah, I think Michael just wanted to, like, shoot that same shot over him in practice every day, just to remind him. And, and imagine being Kwame Brown and you're bullied by MJ in that first season, and then you show up to training camp the next year, and there's Charles Oakley. Um, <laughs> I mean... Talk talk about a, a fun first two years in the NBA. They also draft Jared Jeffries and a Maryland legend, Juan Dixon. So Michael goes into this season, and he's going to turn 40 um, on February 17, 2003. And he actually starts the season in a six-man role, um, you know, because of the cartilage issues that he had dealt with with his knee. He felt that would be best for the team. But, you know, um, 15 games uh, into the season, he goes back into the starting lineup, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall when, when Michael, you know, told Doug Collins, all right, I'm going back to the starting lineup. Forget all this six-man stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Doug really pressed back much against that. And, you know, as it was, Jordan was playing like 30 minutes a night anyway. So it's not like he played that many more minutes when he re-entered the starting lineup. But it must have been odd for him, too, to spend that time coming off the bench you know, being that it wasn't something he'd really done up to that point. Yeah, and, you know, in a way, uh, Michael played a part in helping the Pistons win another championship. You know, the, the Rip Hamilton, Jerry Stackhouse trade um, did, you know, steer the Pistons in, in the right path where they would eventually win the title in 2004. So I'm sure Michael is really happy about that. So they go 37 and 45 again and miss the playoffs. But because this is Michael's last season, there are, you know, a few – highlights and last games and places and things of that nature his last game in Chicago is in January of that season he gets a four-minute ovation pregame he grabs the mic addresses the fans at midcourt and also gets a video tribute it's a 104-97 loss I was researching a little bit of this I guess by that point you know even though it is a, a huge deal that it's Michael's last game in Chicago felt a little anticlimactic I guess because you know he was 40 and he was on the Wizards yeah, and he had a couple last games already. You know, I, I think, like, it is good, I guess, that he got a chance to get a little bit of closure like that only because his last game as a Bull was in Utah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think the Bulls, they'd already done all this before, right? I mean, they'd retired number 23. They'd hung all the banners. They'd done so many ring nights. Like, I feel like, you know, they had spent a good portion of the 90s celebrating Michael Jordan. So one more night when he was already sort of de facto retired, you know, was, so, was sort of an odd thing. And meanwhile, the Bulls obviously with their, their sort of young, you know, <laughs> rebuild 1C or whatever was in effect at that time, like I think they were trying to move on too. Yeah, so the following month, Michael plays in his 14th and final All-Star game. And the 14th all-Star appearance uh, set a record. It would be later broken by Kobe Bryant and LeBron. So a um, bit of controversy around uh, Michael's All-Star 
game, final all-star game, because he's not voted in as a starter. And there's literally, this is the main um, media storyline heading into the all-star game is, is someone going to give up their starting spot for Michael? And that's someone uh, being Vince Carter, who was voted in. And if you remember, you know, he had his 2000 dunk contest. Uh, This is the height of his popularity as a Toronto Raptor. But Vince was going through an injury plague season. And, you know, by the stats, I guess, if you want to go by that, he didn't deserve to be an all-star starter. And in the weeks and days leading up to it, he has asked over and over again to give up a spot. And he, he refuses and says that, you know, actually, I don't know what his exact thing is. I feel like Vince always says these really vague things. But I guess his thing was just that, like, you know, you know the fans voted him in and they wanted to see him. So it would only be right. Other guys uh, like T-Mac and AI actually offered their spot to MJ. And MJ is asked about this leading up to the game. And he says, quote, the reason I wouldn't accept it and I don't want to accept it is because it says a lot for them to go out and live up to what people expect of them, which is why they were voted as the starting five. I've had my chances to start 13 years. And if I don't start the 14th year, I won't lose sleep. And of course, after all this controversy, right before the starting lineups are announced, Vince actually gives up his spot to Michael. I mean, it's just... I don't know. It, it was definitely really pointless that it came to all that. If you're going to do this whole tribute with Mariah and everything else, Jordan's going to get his time. Like, it's not going to make that much of a difference just to announce him amongst the starters. Let the guys who get voted in as starters start. It's not that difficult. If he wanted to take, and I mean, by that nature, if he wanted to take Tracy's spot or Allen's spot, he could have done that. I mean, take something that's offered. Like, the reason this was this being all put on Vince Carter to give up his spot because he was seen as the one who, I guess, quote-unquote, didn't earn it was just a little ridiculous. I mean, I can see it from Vince's side more than I can see from Mike's side. Hey, like, I got the votes to be a starter. He was the, you know, the leading vote-getter for years. Like, just let the guy start. I think at that point, you're sort of damaging even the value of the starting spot itself. I mean, once you argue about it for so long, whether you give it up or not, like it's just kind of pointless. Yeah, you know, I'm with you. Um, I think there was a lot of unfair pressure directed towards Vince. Um, you know, why did it have to be him um, who was the one who had to give up the spot? And the other thing, too, is I guess technically Michael could have said no, right? You know, when Vince finally approached him. I would imagine. I mean, I can't imagine someone telling Michael Jordan, like, no, you're starting even though this guy (laughs) doesn't want you to. I'm just saying, like, when you look at a guy like Allen Iverson and we know how much – he's one of the few guys that still respects um, and has no problem kind of giving props to the current generation of players. Um, I wonder if it was a similar scenario, say, Iverson in his final season and someone – from the current era was offering him his spot. I could see someone like AI saying, no, like just keep the spot. Like this is unnecessary, but you know, Mike, Michael took, um, Michael took uh, the starting spot and he almost hit the game winner, right? He did almost hit the game winner. It was one of those things where like he hit this absurd falling, you know, baseline following over Sean Marion, who, I mean, my God, I forget, I forget what Sean Marion listed at like six, seven, but I mean, you know, obviously great leaper, incredible defender, and Jordan hits this shot over him, and it's, you know, it's looking like going to be this storybook ending, and uh, I believe it was Kobe fouled Jermaine O'Neal on the other end with time basically out that ends up sending the game to overtime, and the West ends up winning in double overtime. Jordan did wind up with 20 points. I mean, he definitely uh, 
made up for the year before when he missed far more shots than he took and finished with, you know, his lowest point total since his rookie year when he was allegedly frozen out. Um, he couldn't even blame Isaiah Thomas and uh, George Gervin for the 2002 All-Star game because I'm pretty sure they didn't play in it. But uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. I mean, all anyone remembers is Mariah Carey anyway. Yeah, Mariah Carey and the trend of NBA jersey prom dresses for the next 10 years after that. Michael is the only player that season on the Wizards to play in all 82 regular season games. He ends up starting 60 of them, finishes uh, with averages of 20 points, 5.3 rebounds. Again, still a very productive player at his age. He has three 40-plus point games, 41 points against Indiana in January, 45 against New Orleans uh, in February, which I went back and watched uh, a highlight uh, compilation of. It's literally 21 minutes on YouTube of Michael Jordan just hitting uh, mid-range jumpers. Uh, 43 points against the Nets. And a low point uh, in December. He only has two points on one of nine shooting against the Raptors in Toronto. I guess I'm glad I didn't ask my parents to pay premium prices to go see MJ that oh my day. God. I mean, he had, he had a couple, you know, in both of those seasons, like single point games. And it's just like, that's where it sort of runs into the issue where it's like, you know, man, it's, it's what he wants to do. But like, man, to go out there and have to see Mike put up six, eight, two points. I mean, that two point game, he actually did have eight rebounds and nine assists. I mean, I think like, he was always going to go out there and do something. But, you know, to go out there and watch Michael Jordan, of all people, shoot one for nine, like, that, w- that was never the way it was supposed to be. You know, I mean, I go back, same thing, to that, that scene in The Last Dance when he's driving to the game with Ahmad Rashad, talking about how, like, you know, Patrick says they're going to have to carry him off the court, and, like, Mike doesn't want to be that guy playing out there until he can't play anymore. And it's like, well, dude, that's who you are now. You know, like, you're 40 – you're scoring two points in a game. It's not like you're going to suddenly have a great season at 41. You're just done. I mean, I think Charles Barkley always talked about that too, where it's like, you know, when you get old, it's like that's the worst part about it is like you're not playing well and it's not like you're going to suddenly turn around and play better. Yeah, so two questions for you. Do you think 40-year-old Michael was um, still going out and partying at the same pace um, on off days as he was when he was with the Bulls? And if he was, who was the Scott Burrell of this Wizards team? Ooh, that's a good question. I would have to look at almost the whole roster. I think at that <laughs> point, I don't even know if there was a Scott Burrell of the Wizards team. I think Mike was spending most of his time hanging out with, uh, with Oak. I think that's why he brought Oak around because it's like, you know, Oak is old too. So they can just kind of go off and, uh, you know, do things together and be peers in age as well as experience and, you know, Oak is going to get what Mike's talking about with things and not going to look at him crazy or bring up the name of some rapper that Mike probably never heard of because he's still listening to Anita Baker through his cassette Walkman. So I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know if there was a Scott Burrell. And even if there was, you know, and to turn this around on you, like, do you think when Mike ripped people as a wizard that they just turned right around and ripped him back? Oh, you know, by then I'm sure, you know, maybe – Group chats were still, uh, you know, not a thing yet. But, you know, the, the younger guys must have had their own uh, group chat or, you know, MySpace DM group thread or whatever it might be. 
they were definitely not happy with Michael. And, and, you know, the trend of teammates getting tired of him really comes out towards the end of the season as they're going to miss the playoffs again. Uh, in March, after a series of losses, Jordan comes out and calls out his teammates for not hustling. He says, quote, it's very disappointing when a 40-year-old man has more desire than a 25, 26, 23-year-old diving for loose balls, busting his chin, doing everything he can to get his team in the playoffs. This goes back again to something that we saw over and over again in the last dance is, is Michael Michael kind of just insinuating that he's the only one that's trying or he's the only one that's putting in this full effort. Yeah, I mean, th- this is another thing that sort of reminded me of like that when I watched that Lance Armstrong doc where it's like, man, like you're just so caught up in your own thing that you can't understand that anyone else like, you know, is maybe just sort of figuring it out. You know, I mean, Larry Hughes saying that he, you know, they're not used to playing with someone who dominates the ball like that. And it's true. It's like adjusting to playing with Michael Jordan was hard. I mean, obviously his teammates had trouble with that, even while they were winning championships, let alone while they're struggling to make the playoffs. I mean, I can only imagine his intensity being difficult to deal with, especially when the prior season, you know, it led to injuries. You know, this this season, his last season, they start him coming off the bench, figure like ease some of the wear and tear. And again, that last 15 games, like, no, I'm going to start. And he did end up playing all 82, but, you know, I'm sure even that was, was difficult. I, w- I would love to see like, or get an unvarnished take from Tim Grover, you know, about Mike during those years and having to rebuild him back into basketball shape with a body that, like, you know, obviously was a bit past its prime. Yeah, and I'm sure some of the younger guys couldn't have been happy with, say, Charles Oakley occupying a roster spot when that could have gone to a player that could have contributed more. Um, You know, I wonder how the players felt about Doug Collins being there, because obviously that's MJ's guy. Um, So in April, after the Wizards are officially eliminated from the playoffs, Uh, Michael has another quote to the reporters. He says, quote, sometimes you need to get hit in the head to realize that you're in a fight. Is that that a reference to Steve Kerr? Um, It's unbelievable. We had to come down to this moment where we're really fighting and scratching to try to stay in the playoffs when all season long we had great opportunities to win ball games and take advantage of it. Again, it's a very, you know, Michael's over here and his teammates are over there. I'm doing this and you guys aren't doing that. Um, So two teammates actually uh, responded to this. You know, Brandon Haywood talked about playing with MJ. And he said, quote, the pros were that you got to play with Michael Jordan. You got to learn from the best. You got to see how things were done. The cons were maybe a little less patience because the team's trying to make the playoffs right away. You didn't get a chance to play through some of your mistakes. You were getting taken out of the game and yelled at for it. Uh, I think this sums up the Kwame Brown experience with Michael Jordan, right? Yeah, and that's the thing. If if you are, you know, Developing young teams, you need to have patience. Making the playoffs, you can't afford to have patience. And they were kind of stuck in the middle of those two things. I mean, I go back to that Jordan quote about, you know, when all season long we had great opportunities to win ball games and take advantage of it. Well, that's how teams miss the playoffs. I mean, the teams who aren't good, not every team just goes out there and loses every game by 20. I mean, the way you miss the playoffs is losing games you should have won. And unfortunately, the Wizards, even with Michael Jordan as their best player, they weren't a great team. I mean, they, they were a team that probably was going to lose games that came down to the last minute because you couldn't necessarily just give the ball to Jordan and get out of the way, the famous Doug Collins play. You know, I mean, there was obviously no new Detroit Pistons running a Jordan rules because they didn't have to. I mean, you could let him sort of, 
naturally run down by the end of the game. And he's not going to come out and save you, at least not all the time. Every once in a while he did. But with end-of-game heroics at 40. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, really well said. And, and Jerry Stackhouse um, talked a little bit about, you know, Michael as a potential distraction. Um, you know, he said, quote, it's deeper than what you see. I'll leave it at that. The focus is not so much on the game. It's on the circumstances and situations around the game. You can't play basketball like that. When he goes back upstairs and he's referring to Michael Jordan going back to the front office, guys will just kind of relax a little bit and maybe that will be the difference. It will change a lot of things. So the Wizards um, are eliminated from the playoffs. So the final regular season game is Michael's actual final NBA game, and it is in Philadelphia. They lose 107 to 87. Some theatrics, uh, Bulls, longtime Bulls PA announcer Ray Clay is brought in to introduce Michael in the starting lineup. Uh, Moses Malone and Julius Irving presented Michael with a golf cart. I don't know why I laughed when I read that. Just, you know, I feel like Michael would take that as a slight, no? Oh, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm surprised he didn't try and run him over with it. I mean, that's such, like, that's such classic, like, 80s NBA retirement kind of thing, too. You know, I know the Sixers all gave Iverson a boat when he retired. So maybe it was a Philly thing, actually, giving a retiring player a mode of transportation. I am curious if Mike still has that golf cart. A brief aside, and it's funny, like, because, I mean, I've talked about it before. I mean, I was a huge Michael Jordan fan. Like, he basically got me into basketball. Obviously, he was a huge presence at Slam when I was there, both when he was retired and when he was active. And I thought about going to this game and trying to get credentials, and I ended up not doing it. I think part of the reason I didn't was because I thought it would just be more depressing than, than like, fun. You know, it would have been – and I probably had a little bit of hindsight afterwards, like, ah, it was Jordan's last game. I probably should have gone. But, man, I mean, looking back, like, yeah, Mike's last game, they lose by 20. They miss the playoffs. Like, ew, I don't know. I'm good with not being there for that. Yeah, it always felt like those two years when he came back on the Wizards, um, especially when you realize that the roster didn't really have an identity and they weren't going to make the playoffs, that this was more for, like, younger, younger fans who, like, maybe didn't get a chance to see Michael in person. And this would have been cool for them to, you know, go to the arena, um, you know, to see Michael. But you're right. That, you know, for a final NBA game at the time, it didn't feel like it should have had the impact as what a Michael Jordan's final NBA game should have had. So he plays 28 minutes, 15 points, four rebounds, four assists. This might be useful for trivia later if you are ever, you know, in trivia games. Michael's four starters, other four starters in his final game, Kwame Brown, Tyron Liu, Larry Hughes, and Christian Leitner. A bit of a step down from the 96 Bulls, you know, 97 Bulls. Yeah, um, that's, that's not a playoff <laughs> starting five. <laughs> and, you know, Michael is on the bench late in the fourth quarter of a blowout. But, you know, in the fourth, um, you know, the crowd starts chanting, we want Mike. And, and finally, Doug Collins brings Michael back in with two and a half minutes left. And his final points are on free throws. He gets a standing ovation from the fans after he checks out. And that's it. After the game, Michael says, quote, it's time to move on. It's easier to accept that because physically I know it and feel it. Yeah, and, you know, he leaves a sort of brief coda legacy there of, you know, great attendance numbers, decent numbers on the floor. You know, it's like 26-5 and five is definitely nothing to, you know, nothing to shake your head at. Even if a guy in his prime averaged that or a young guy, it's impressive. 
you know, but he kind of did it in a situation that had been built up for him. You know, I don't, I don't think, and maybe he said this and maybe it was a thought, you know, that he brought in Doug Collins because Doug would be good for the younger players. You know, obviously Doug was good for a young Michael Jordan. He didn't do a bad job with a young Grant Hill in Detroit. Unfortunately, I don't, he did not have a young Michael Jordan or a young Grant Hill in Washington. I mean, he was probably absolutely the wrong coach for a Kwame Brown. You know, he kind of needed a teacher more than anything. So I, I think Mike kind of tweaked the environment to suit him. And that was not the most helpful thing for the guys around him. And unfortunately, you know, despite everything, the only way you could justify Doug Collins and the Rip Hamilton trade and, you know, some of the signings would have been with playoff appearances. And those didn't come. So when he ended up leaving and retiring, he kind of left the team in worse shape than it was when he got there. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think there's any argument for that. Do you think it would have been better or worse for his legacy if he was able to bring one of these Wizards teams to the playoffs, even if it meant, say, getting swept in the first round, and that would be his final appearance in the NBA? I think it would have been better. You know, I, and, and it's, it's hard to say that someone's legacy could be better when they're considered – the best basketball player of all time. But, you know, I, I still look at Jordan's career as sort of being encapsulated in, in two different bubbles. And obviously the Bulls, you know, I don't, I don't think his coming back for the Wizards should affect how you, anyone sees his career with the Bulls. I think that was an entirely separate thing. But, I mean, when he came back with the Wizards, and if you knew he was going to be back for two seasons, and you knew in advance that they weren't going to make the playoffs either of those two years, I, I think that would have come as a surprise. You know, I think even a 38, 39, 40-year-old Michael Jordan was expected to be good enough at least to get a team to the playoffs. So it's hard not to look at that as, as a failure of sorts. I mean, especially given that, again, you know, the, the team wasn't exactly left in better shape. It's not like he did a wonderful job of player development with anybody. You know, Kwame Brown was kind of a bit of a wreck, and Rip Hamilton was a piston. So... You know, the, the two guys who probably should have benefited the most from Jordan's presence just didn't. Yeah, you know, I think ultimately on a scale of one to Patrick Ewing wearing a Sonics jersey, you know, I think Michael's tenure with the Wizards probably like a, I don't know, like a four, a three or four to me. I think it's a lot less. I feel like when people look back on it, you know, maybe they gloss over the fact that he actually probably met or exceeded a lot of people's expectations for what a 39 and a 40 year old could do on the court. But like you said, when you take the sum of everything in terms of uh, he set the franchise back, um, you know, the, the way he treated other players like Kwame Brown, uh, the moves that he made with the Rip Hamilton trade, um, you can't look back on it with good feelings and good thoughts because he definitely did not, like you said, leave the organization in a better place than when he stepped uh, came out of retirement uh, for the two years. So Michael retires, and it's expected that he goes back to the front office with the Wizards, except, surprise, Abe Poland fires him 
at the end of that season. Uh, Wes Unseld, the general manager, is out. Doug Collins, um, you know, obviously is out. And Ernie Grunfeld is hired as president of basketball operations. Uh, the Ernie Grunfeld era is a, an entirely different podcast, which we might dive into in season 10. Um, so Abe tells the AP five months after dis- dismissing Jordan, quote, it was not a healthy atmosphere to produce a happy organization or a winning team. I could sense the unhappiness, the sense of even maybe a little dissension in the whole organization. I sense that it was a bad situation. So it looks like Abe just realized that Michael had all this power and control, was starting to bring in his own guys in the organization, but it just didn't result in winning. Yeah, and I, I'm curious, I mean, especially given how the Grunfeld era went, you know, how things would have worked out if Michael Jordan did step back into his ownership and director of basketball operations role. You know, the, the big move they made that summer was signing Gilbert Arenas, who was a second-round pick, and, you know, before they figured out how that stuff would work, he basically played his way into a big contract that the Warriors couldn't match, which obviously was a move that, you know, finally put the Wizards into a winning trajectory. You know, does that happen? With Jordan running basketball, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But uh, I understand where Pollen was coming from. But, you know, I think a lot of that unhappiness and dissension came from Jordan's presence on the floor, not in the front office. Although, you know, obviously we were robbed then of stories of Gilbert going against Jordan in the practice facility. Oh, I thought you meant on the plane, like card games. Oh, that's you. How, that's how things you. would spiral out of control. Pick one. Another podcast. So that does wrap up Michael's Wizards years, and, and he eventually comes back uh, with the Charlotte Bobcats, now Charlotte Hornets, in 2010, I believe. And it's the year 2020 now, and we're still waiting to see uh, when Michael is going to be a good NBA executive. Or whether he's going to come back at all. And this is a bit of foreshadowing, but he said – during his Hall of Fame speech that, you know, don't be surprised to see him at 50. Um, We did not see him at 50, but 60 is coming up. And we need the content, Mike, do it. There's no reason a 60 year old Michael Jordan couldn't give someone, I don't even want to say five minutes, two or three minutes off the bench. I don't want to see him try and stay in front of anybody, but uh, I bet he could still post up and drop a fall away over somebody. So this is what's going to happen in like 2025 when the Knicks strike out on all their free agents. They're going to sign Michael to a one-year deal. That's my prediction. Uh, anything, else you, anything else you wanted to add to, to the MJ's Wizards years? No, I think, I think that's a gr- good way to cap it off. I can't top a 65-year-old Michael Jordan playing for the Knicks. All right, so that does it for us for this episode. As always, you can find each episode of After the Last Dance on iTunes, Spotify, and any other podcast platforms that you use. I want to give a quick shout out to Soul Savvy once again for giving Russ and I this platform to continue to talk about Michael Jordan, the Bulls, and everything After the Last Dance related. And we'll be back on the next episode. The sneaker game is tough if you're in it alone. Getting the latest pair of hype sneakers It's becoming increasingly difficult these days. As soon as you try to purchase, the shoe is out of stock. If you want to improve your skills, you need to learn the tricks of the trade. Be smart 
and get equipped with the right tools and information you need to help you cop the sneakers you want. Soul Savvy, the exclusive sneaker community.